Welcome to episode 92 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and the history of one of golf's great forgotten golfers, Ralph Goodall. Ralph Goodall was on the path to break into America's great triumvirate of Hogan, Sneed, and Nelson. And for a period of roughly four years, he was arguably the greatest golfer on the planet. As fast as his star rose, it diminished. One day, he was back-to-back U.S. Open champion and Masters champion, and the next, he seemingly lost his game and had to retire. Today's story is of a golfer who is destined to be one of the greatest, but now lingers with the names of the unknown. A special thanks to Warren Rogan and his terrific podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes. You can download Sports Forgotten Heroes anywhere you listen to podcasts, and his stories reach across all sports. I would also be remiss if we didn't also thank my friend and fellow golf historian, Dr. Tony Parker, who is the guest for this show. Before we start the show, the Talking Golf History Podcast and the Society of Golf Historians has a special treat. On January 23rd, 2023, we will be hosting roughly 50 golfers at Bel Air Country Club to come play our newly renovated Donald Ross Golf Course. Bel Air is the oldest golf course in the state of Florida, and its first three golf professionals won the U.S. Open. The outing will include a round on the newly restored golf course and a dinner with a live recording of the Talking Golf History podcast. If you have an interest in being one of the 50, reach out to me and let me know. You can reach me at the Society of Golf Historians at gmail.com. And now, Sports Forgotten Heroes presents the story of Ralph Goodall. He won two U.S. Open championships in a row, won three Western Opens in a row, won a Masters. Overall, he notched 16 wins in less than 10 years and then stepped away from the game, basically never to be heard from again. He was the most dominant golfer of his time, and so few remember this Hall of Famer. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of one of golf's greats, Ralph Bulldog. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and once again, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us for a look back at one of the most phenomenal careers in the history of golf, the career of Ralph Goldall. And joining the podcast in just a moment for this stroll down memory lane will be Tony Parker, golf historian from the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum in St. Augustine, Florida. Last time Tony was here, we talked about Willie Anderson, the only man to win three U.S. Open Golf Championships in a row. This time around, we're going to talk about Ralph Goodall, one of a select few who have won the U.S. Open two years in a row. Goodall's career is quite remarkable. Bursting on the scene in 1931, he won his first tournament before he turned 20 years old, the Santa Monica Open. But after just a few years of playing, 
frustration took over, you know, something many of us Sunday golfers can relate to. But the health of a young son and finances were just too much for Ralph, and he walked away from the game. Hard to believe for someone as talented and as young as he was. But the golf bug was just too much to ignore. He left the game in 1935, but returned in 1936, and he just took over the sport, winning 13 times over a five-year stretch. Now, before we get to Ralph's story, a friendly reminder, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook or follow us on the web at SportsFH.com. Drop us an email and let us know how we're doing or who you think we should do a show on or give us a rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget that Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. So, if you don't have time to sit and read and you're running around but you still want to enjoy a great book, Audible is a terrific way to do so. There's almost 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And Audible is a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. No obligation. You don't have to pay for a thing. So, Ralph Goodall. He won the U.S. Open in 1937 and 1938, three Western Open championships, 1936, 1937, and 1938, and the Masters in 1939. He made three Ryder Cup teams as well. And joining Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about Ralph is Tony Parker from the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum. Hey, Tony, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I'm so glad you could join us once again. Hey, so what's new in St. Augustine and the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum? Well, I'll tell you what, we've got things going on all the time, as you well know. Uh, Our newest exhibit is the Players Experience, where we uh, really celebrate the Players' Championship go through the history, have a wall-to-wall um, display where our fans can stand and watch the 17th hole and feel the heartbeat. Wow. Uh, we've also just just had our induction, and so we have Meg Mallon, Lorraine Ochoa, uh, Henry Longhurst, Davis Love III, and, uh, of course, Ian Woosnam, uh, and they have a big display uh, in, in uh, our show hall. But our newest exhibit that's about to open in June is called Tales from the Collection. And there we're going to be showing a lot of unique items, such as uh, an original painting by Andy Warhol of Jack Nicholas, uh, along with uh, young Tom Morris's putter that he used in 1868 when he won his first Open Championship, first of four. So a lot going on. That sounds that sounds awesome. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, the players' exhibit and the 17th hole. That sounds really interesting. Well, it is. When you first walk in, we talk about the history of it. And, of course, 11 Hall of Fame members have won the players. Jack Nicholas is the only one that's won it three times mm-hmm. uh, so far. So mm-hmm. far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, of course, we highlight the, the new winner plus the, old, uh, the, the ones who've won previously. But then in the second section, it's 1,800 square feet of exhibition space. When you walk in, we've got uh, uh, the $1 check that uh, uh, Dean Beeman paid for the 412 acres that is now TPC Sawgrass. 
Um, we got all kinds of things, uh, memorabilia there. But you stand on a circle, and, and a, a wall-to-wall video begins just telling you about the 17th hole. And then uh, it has a film of how it builds up the pressure. Hmm. And then it shows a couple of things there. And it, it's really, really good. Of course, we got some great quotes. You know, General Haffey said it's the easiest par five on the golf course. <laughs> um, Mark Kalkovecchia said, uh, you know, it's like having a root canal. I'm calling it for a root canal. You know, you feel bad all day because, you know, sooner or later you got to get to it. <laughs> so it kind of builds the pressure. There, but there are great quotes in there. It's, and then we've got a little quiz. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, some question about how many holes and ones on 17 and birdies and things like that. What's the highest score ever? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's a really cool exhibit, and it's gone down extremely popular with our with our guests. Very cool. I'm going to definitely make my way up there to uh, to check it out. Hey, so so last time you were here, we spoke about who who I think is a real unknown a a man who won four U.S. Open championships, Willie Anderson. Yeah, and and today another former U.S. Open champion, a guy who also won the Masters. But a guy who basically walked away from the game when he was still capable of winning, Ralph Goodall. Can you tell us a little bit about Ralph and what made him so special with a golf club in his hand? Well, I'll tell you, he's a self-taught guy. He's from Dallas, Texas. Of course, he was born just a year before uh, Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson, Sam Snead. Um, but he, he kind of came on. He won his first tournament when he was 19 years old, he turned pro in 1930, hmm. uh, won in 1931. So, uh, young kid. And, and then, uh, he, he plays for a couple of years, but then when his son is born, Ralph Jr., uh, his son was not very well. Hmm. And so, uh, Ralph just walked away from the game for a couple of years. Um, was a used car salesman for a while, but then he was asked to design a little golf course in Kilgore, Texas. And that gave him the bug again. And he comes back in 1935, and he comes in second at the Open in 1935, second in the Open in 1936. Then he wins the U.S. Open in 37 and 38. Wow. Um, he won three Western Opens in a row in 1936, 37, 38. Uh, and then you get to the Masters in 1937, 38. He came in second at the Masters. And then he wins it in 1939, and then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> then he walked away <laughs> he, again. Yeah, uh, well, he, he, a um, couple of things he said about that. He said, one, he was just tired of life on the road, and, and two, he, he was concerned about his family. Uh, but then later he said that he never had a tremendous desire to win, and I don't see that because, I mean, he, from 1936 to 1940, he absolutely dominated the PGA Tour. He had 16 wins. Right. Um, and, and when you're talking about either first or second, the four or five years in a row and two of the major championships. I mean, come on. Uh, nobody has done better than that. Do you do you think that he was sort of masking a different reason as to why he walked away, or was it just because what he said? I mean, that's really hard to believe that he walked away from the game because, eh, you know, he just didn't have this desire to win when that's what he did. He won. <laughs> Anymore big, yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you, I, you know, I kind of think, and and this is kind of a, a prevalent attitude. You know, when he was asked to write that uh, instructional book, and he saw films of him of his swing, which was kind of unorthodox. I mean, he had power, no question about that, but it wasn't an unorthodox swing. 
And then he started trying to work on his swing, and he pretty much lost his game. I mean, we call it paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he start, started working on the game, instead of being a, the natural golfer that he was, he started trying to be more of a technique golfer. And I think he just over overanalyzed everything and lost his game. Interesting. You know, it's so funny when you read things and then you hear things and it's not always the same. I read where he walked away from the game of golf the first time around because he was really frustrated with the game, not because of a newborn child, but because of just absolute frustration, particularly what happened to him in the 1933 U.S. Open after coming back from nine shots down with 11 to play, he missed a four-foot putt to force a playoff. And On the 18th hole, that's right. Yeah, so so tell me about that. Of course, I mean, when he won the U.S. Open and he beat Sneeds by a couple of strokes and when he holed out on the 15th hole and when he won the Masters by holding out from a bunker on the 18th hole, uh, you know, he's got the game. And, and as you say, he made a charge, absolutely made a charge in 33. Uh, but then when you get a four-foot putt, I don't know if it was the, the pressure that got to him because, remember, uh, this is his first time in, in, the, in, the, in the big leagues, as it mm-hmm. were, you know. Um, and uh, he missed it. And, and I think just, um, I'd say this, but kind of like Doug Sanders in 1970 at the o- Open in St. Andrews, um, when all the pressure is there, and you know you've made that putt a thousand times, and you miss it. Yeah. And just, uh, I, I don't know if you if you'd say just the deflation of the, of the moment or the embarrassment of the moment. You know, how could I miss that? Um, but whatever it was, it absolutely took the wind out of his sails. And and he had, I mean, he, the, what he did on the course to get to that point is, I mean, it's amazing. Nine shots down with 11 to play. What was going on there? Well, you know, when you start out with birdie, birdie, eagle, it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you kind of you set the pace for the day right there. Um, and then to get down to the last hole to force that playoff, um, I mean, everything's riding on no matter how well you've played up to that point, everything's riding on that last putt. Right. And didn't make it. So like you said earlier, he won 16 times on tour. His first victory came in 31 at the Santa Monica Open. Then he won again in 1932 at the Arizona Open. At this point, you would think everything's okay. But then he became really frustrated with the game, basically because of the U.S. Open. And going back to what you just said, how he left the game because of a young child, it still doesn't add up because I could see you leaving the game. But, I mean, he was giving the game up. He sold his clubs and said, enough is enough. I mean, how bad could things have been that he goes to the extent of even selling his golf clubs? Well, you know, you you have to think. I mean, here's a guy that uh, was on the rise. I mean, no question about it. He probably wasn't winning as much as he thought he would be. I mean, come on. He's 19, 20, 21 years old. (laughs) Uh, At that age, you expect to win everything. And expect to hold every putt, right? Uh, you know, I mean, that's that's just the expectations of a young guy, especially when you know you've got the talent to win. And obviously, 
he did starting 30, in 1935 and uh, 36 all the way up to, to 1940. Um, when you know you got the talent and you're not living up to your potential, that gets extremely frustrating. Sure. And, and no doubt, um, he felt the pressure to win, especially with a, with a new family. Uh, you know, I, I need to win. I need, I need this. Um, and he couldn't, couldn't close it. You know, he played in, well, I guess it was sort of like the golden age of golf. Like you had said earlier, he was born a year before Hogan. So he played when it was right around the time that Sam Snead was coming into his own. And guys like Byron Nelson and Ben were emerging. Can you paint a picture for us and tell us what golf was like at the time Ralph played, I mean, most of us know about Snead and Nelson and Hogan, but who else were the champions of the day, and what was it like to play on the PGA Tour back then? Well, as you know, up until 1930, thanks to Bobby Jones and people like him, like, like him uh, you know, the amateur game was kind of premier. And then it was with the advent of people like Gene Saracen and Walter Hagen. Uh, that really starts bringing it into the forefront and, and the professional golfers now center stage, not the amateur. Mm-hmm. And, and the, it, it's just, I don't want to say it's fledgling because, you know, the PGA of America started 1916 and the USGA has been around since 1895. So uh, it's not new, but for the professional golfers being the household names now, that is new. Mm-hmm. And, and I think kind of Bobby Jones kind of opened the door to that to really put the U.S. Open um, on the map uh, in the sense of, of real winners. Um, but you got Gene Saracen, the real personality, and Walter Hagen, you know, Mr. Mr. Confidence himself coming sure. on. Sure. Um, and then Ralph kind of slips in there in, in, like I say, 1935-36 and dominates the place. And now this is before Byron Nelson or Ben Hogan really started making their charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Byron's not just 39, 40, 41, and then 45 is when he had his great year of 18 wins and 11 in a row. Uh, and and H- Hogan, uh, of course, he wins a couple, you know, right on the cusp of the, of the World War II, and then after that, he really takes off. Mm-hmm. So Ralph is really the one leading the charge. He's the one that's setting the stage for Sam Snead and Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson to come on. Uh, so... In their case, I hate to say this, but it might have been a good thing that Ralph would all walk away from the game. <laughs> when he walked away from the game the first time, you had mentioned that he was a used car salesman. I had also read where he worked as a carpenter in movie studios and at the time also part of the reason he sold his clubs was for meal money. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, there is. Um, I mean, I, I'd read that as well, that he worked as a carpenter on the movie sets. And, and of course, well, he had moved his family out to California uh, because of a healthier climate for his son. What was uh, what so was, was wrong with his son? You know, I really don't know. I, uh, all I've read and, and all I've heard is that uh, he was a bit sickly. Mm-hmm. And it may have been to do with lungs or, or, or whatever, but... Uh, uh, but he was advised by the doctors to to take him to California, and he did. Hmm. Uh, and that's probably when he went initially to work uh, at the movie studios as a carpenter, uh, just to make the money to to feed the family. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that that it's, it's not until 1935 
that uh, he's asked to design a course in Kilgore, Texas, a little nine-hole course, that he he takes up the clubs again. Uh, so there's that gap there. And, and again, remember 1935, he's still only 24 years old. Right. Um, so it, it's quite a, a compliment to ask him to design the golf course. But yeah, that, pretty pretty amazing at that age to do that. It is absolutely amazing. So uh, I think there's a lot more to to Ralph Goodall than, than history has recorded because he is the forgotten man. Uh, yeah, we can talk about his wins, and he's had several, obviously three majors in a three year span, uh, including the Western Open, which is, at that time was considered on par with a major championship. Right, he won that right. three times in a row. Uh, so uh, if we really put that in the context, that's six majors in three years. That's, that's impressive. We but would that's say that's Tiger-esque. Really, Tiger-esque, yeah. I think, I think that's a good way to put that. Um, but we, but from a personal standpoint, we really don't know a whole lot about him. I mean, there's a couple of books that have come out. Sure. Uh, but I don't think they really cover the man. Now, there's a lot going on with this guy, and I think he is far more talent than he's been given credit for. Was was it designing that course that that got him charged again to go back out and try and try the tour once again that got his competitive juices flowing? Well I think you know once once you get out and, and from a, a golf course design standpoint, if you're a golfer, then you actually think about how you play golf. How would I design this hole? Mm-hmm. That would a suit my game and would suit the game of an average golfer, but then the whole time you're thinking in the back of your mind, yeah, how would I play this? Mm-hmm. How, how could I shoot this? And I think that's kind of sparked us back. I know I can do this, or mm-hmm. if I was playing, playing well, I could do this. Uh, and I think that was enough to say, I, I think I'll brush off the cobwebs and uh, practice on my game a little bit and, and see how it works out on this new course and. And, uh, hey, I'm hitting it pretty good. Let's give it another shot. Hmm. And uh, I'm glad he did. Yeah, how in the world, when he decided to come back, how in the world did he find his old set of clubs? Now, that you got me. I I don't (laughs) have a clue. Um, I mean, chances are, you know, when we say he sold them, chances are he probably pawned them. Right. And uh, went back to the pawn shop, because a lot of guys did that in those days. Um, and there's some stories abounding about that kind of stuff where they pawn them and then go back and, and get them back when they win some money and then <laughs> put them back when they need some money. And, you know, kind of rotating door there. Sure. Um, and when he did but, come back, when he did come back, he sought the services of Olin Dutra for for help with his game. Why Olin? Yeah. Well, Olin, again, is, is all right, he's not uh, renowned as a fantastic player. But he's a great coach, and he certainly has certain aspects of his game that was quite good. Um, and and chances are, I mean, Ralph was probably just good friends with him. From from what I understand, you know, Ralph um, wasn't the the life of the party and that kind of thing. Um, and and so I imagine he had a few friends that he could count on, and I think Odin was one of them that he could he trusted. Kind of like uh, uh, what when Peter when uh, Tiger went to. Uh, um, Steve Stricker mm-hmm. on some putty. You know, it's just kind of an offhand comment that changed the face of his putting for that for that game. Um, so every once in a while, it's just a comment here or an observation there that says, "Oh, but that's a pretty good idea. Let's let's give that a shot." Uh, so I think it's something along those lines. 
And Owen, he wasn't a second-rate golfer or just a teaching professional. He could play, too. I mean, this guy won the 32 PGA, the 34 U.S. Open. Just how good a golfer was Olin Dutra? Well, see, again, you got to put it in the context of of who all he was playing against. You've got people that overshadow. Walter Hagen is one. I mean, when he won the PGA five times, you know, um, four times in a row, that commanded attention. Sure. So you've got guys, even though they're major winners, oh, oh, I mean, oh, I hate to bring it right up to context and, and contemporary times, well, you got Ratif Goosen, who's won the U.S. Open twice, uh, and, he, and he's not been invited up to uh, Shinnecock, where he won, um, to, to play again. He, I think he's kind of overshadowed there, or not overshadowed, maybe just overlooked, um, and because others kind of shine a little brighter. Uh, and in Olin's case, that's the case. You've got... Gene Saracen, who's really making this mark. You got the Walter Hagen, who's really making this mark. And then you still got the, the, the lasting aura of Bobby Jones throughout the first third, you know, 1930s. Um, so it's kind of easy to get lost in the, in the mix. Uh, and that's exactly what happened here. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't long before he was cashing in winner's checks again. He won yeah. the 1934 Westwood. The 1936 Western Open, which, you know, like you said, some considered to be a major, it was everything just like a major with the exception of, you know, it didn't have major in its title. Then he wins the 36 Augusta Open, the 36 Miami Biltmore Open. What changed in his game and was there a change in his game and was there anything mental there? Well, I, uh, I think you hit it right on the head right there because, to be honest with you, I don't think anything changed in his game proper uh, because, like I say, he was a natural talent, uh, unorthodox swing in the sense, but uh, self-taught. So he, he knew his swing. He knew how to play. But I think, as Bobby Jones said, you know, championship golf is played on a five-and-a-half-inch course, the space between your ears. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and I think in, in uh, Ralph's situation. That's what it was. I think when he won, when he started winning in 36, well, he'd already placed, like I say, he'd placed second, uh, you know, at the U.S. Open in 35. And then he came back in, in um, uh, 37, 38 at the Masters second. But I think once he had that taste of win at the Western in 36, he said, I can win again. Uh-huh. And then he goes to Augusta and he wins at Augusta. All right, I, I can do this. Now, his confidence is being built. And then when he comes into 1937, oh, my gosh, you know, here's the Western Open, the U.S. Open, two majors in one year. 38, the U.S. Open, the Western Open again, right. two majors in a year. And then 39, the Great Greensboro, and then the Masters. I mean, he's on a roll. He's, he's four four big wins, you know, in 1939. And uh, like you said, he was also a runner-up a couple of times in these big tournaments. Exactly right, yeah. Yeah, five five runner in his career he was second place nineteen times. Wow! And we're only talking in a short, you know, what, what, what we're talking not even a, a real decade. We're talking seven years. Yeah, because he took a couple place, years two. off. That's right. So, so in, in seven years, we're talking nineteen second place finishes, sixteen wins, and and um, you know, three of those are majors, or like I say, if you want to throw the Western in there, six. Main uh, elite championships he wins. So I mean, what can you say? And, and really, from thirty six to forty is 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 the years. That man, he was just nobody could beat him. Really. 
What was it about the water in Texas that produced such great golfers like Hogan, Nelson, and, and Ralph Goodall? I wish I knew. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. And, and it's not just these early guys. You know, there's some other guys coming out of Texas today, right. uh, a couple of young players that are pretty doggone good. Um, uh, I, I don't know what it is. It's um, uh, maybe, well, who, who knows? It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I wish I did know it. I might move out to Texas. Yeah, there you go. There you <laughs> go. Maybe something in the water and the air. And like, and, and, and like you said, he was self-taught. Talk about that for a moment. How does one well, teach it, themselves to play this game at such a well, high level like that? Well, you know, it's it's like well, Sam Snead the same way. Uh, ben Hogan, as you well know, the same way. They they. As my dad used to say, it would get in that crawl. You go out and you see something that that is wrong with your swing, and you work on that. Mm-hmm. And if you're a natural, if you have the natural athlete, the natural ability, then you actually have the the, the wherewithal to start working on that aspect of your game. And that's that's what Snead did. That's, as you know, that's what Hogan did, mm-hmm. and Goodall obviously the same way. He he would work on his game, uh, his swing. I um. I was in Lanzarote uh, a few years ago, and uh, I came across a. Well, I played some golf with a, a professional from Germany, and uh, and he was a teaching pro, and he said, uh, "I don't try to correct people's swings. I find their natural swing and build their game around that mm-hmm. swing." Mm-hmm. And I thought, "Oh, okay." So then, when you look at these top pros, I mean, look at Jim Furyk's swing. <laughs> can, can anybody duplicate that swing? But when he comes to striking the ball, he is square on the ball and he hits it very well. Right. Uh, John Daly, who a lot of people you know they know about his long distance, but he has a great touch around the greens. Yep. Um, and what if you look at his swing, you think really? But the result is what pays off. So there are these guys that just have that ability, and Ralph obviously was one uh, who who knew his game. Didn't play anybody else's game. He knew his game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partly what led to his downfall is is when he started analyzing and trying to correct the unor- unorthodox swing that he had. Because it, was a, it was almost a straight back lift and then power through. Um, and he started trying to correct that. And then, of course, when you, when you start fiddling with something mm-hmm. that works, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. What were some? What t- tell us about his game? What were his strengths? What were his weaknesses before he got to that point where he started to fiddle with it, like you were just talking about? Well, you know, again, off the tee, uh, a power a power hitter. Uh, I mean, uh, what was it? Sam Snead said something about when he was on his game, uh, nobody could beat him, and that's obvious. That's obvious from his results. Yeah, because um, he beat Snead twice in two two major championships, uh, uh, right at the last moment there, but. Uh, I think uh, well, his putting he was he was good at putting. Uh, I don't I won't say he's one of the, the best putters, but he knew how to close it out. He did hit some shots. Obviously, since he won two of the majors by holding out from bunkers, mm-hmm. uh, I'd have to say his short game at bunker play must have been pretty doggone good, about on par with maybe Gary Players. You know? Wow, that's saying uh, a or lot. Or even Sam Sneeds. That's saying uh, a lot. And that is saying a lot. Yeah, it is. But obviously, it worked for him. So, 
you know, 1937, of course, was his big year. He wins the U.S. Open. A short time later, he wins the Western Open for the second straight time, a tournament, as we've said a couple times now, that he would win three straight years. He was rolling on all cylinders. Besides winning the Open in 1937, that tournament really played a pivotal role in how the game of golf is played today, at least when it comes to how many clubs you can carry in your bag. It was reported that he carried as many as 19. Why and what were they? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, we we can go beyond that. when Lawson Little won the U.S. Amateur, he had 31 clubs in his bag. I couldn't imagine being a caddy for those guys. No, no, 31 clubs in his bag. And there was some pros carrying as many as 35. I mean, Lawson Little carried seven wedges in his wow. bag. Wow. Because that's got nothing on him. But yeah, <laughs> uh, Ralph Kodal had 19 clubs in his bag. And of course, as of January 1st, 1938, the number of clubs was 14. Um, so he had to cut the number down to 14 from there. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, well, I won't get into all the history of the evolution of the golf clubs and stuff, but when steel shafts came on board and switched from, from steel to hickory pretty much right around 1930 or so, um, they didn't have the torque, didn't have the, the, the flex in them. I mean, they were like triple X stiff shafts. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I wanted to hit the ball a hundred yards at that time, I did maybe a nine iron. <laughs> when they hit 105 yards, I maybe hit an eight-and-a-half iron. Wow. Uh, maybe eight-and-three-quarter iron. Wow. Um, so by the time you get to uh, 1938, January 1st, when the USGA and the RNA, and, and I can give you the background on that a bit, probably like Robert Harris at RNA kind of brought that up in 36. But anyway, um, they cut the numbers back down to 14. Now, that's good for the caddies, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh but for a lot of the pros, it, they really had to adjust and adapt their game. Why? Why fourteen? Uh, Where did that number fourteen come from? Ah, uh, well, there's a there's a lot of uh, discussions about that. There's, you know, one uh, one that came out. Well, it, it started like I say, a fellow by the name of Robert Harris, 1936, R and A, one of the rules meeting. Uh, they were talking about that the skills of the game are being diminished by the advent of these steel shafts. And now to hit a ball, you just bring a, grab another club. <laughs> For instance, 31 clubs. Uh, so we need to put skills back in the game. And how we're going to do that? Well, like now we talk about the limiting golf ball. With I was Andrew just going to say club. that, the, the, the golf yeah. ball. Well, you know, that was the discussion too, 1924. I mean, gosh, we could spend all day talking about this kind of stuff. <laughs> this, this is right up my alley. <laughs> um, in 1924, you know, they tried to standardize the size of the golf ball. And the USGA was 1.68 inches. The RNA said, no, no, 1.62 inches. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. We're talking about 0.06 inches. Ah, but if you believe Jack Nicholas, he said, you know, the smaller ball would travel 50 yards further. Mm. Uh, yeah, same weight, different different design. Um, so in, in 1936, they started the discussions on what to do. Let's limit the number of clubs. Uh, now, Craig Wood, when he played in the 1934 Masters, he had uh, 28 golf clubs in his bag. I can't imagine. Yeah, 28 clubs in his bag. So, you know, some say, well, some manufacturers were already producing, you know, roughly 14 clubs, the putter, three woods or four woods, and then the irons. Although I, I have seen a 17 iron 
Um, you wow. Know, we got the one through through uh, sandwich now, of course, but the one through nine, I've seen 10 irons, 11 irons, and I've even seen, I think we actually have one here in the museum, a 17 iron. Um, 17 so, iron, I just couldn't even imagine. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right. It's got to be um, almost so like yeah. an L shape. Well, Josh, yeah, I might even be more than that. I have to go back there and look at it. Um, but I know, like, Johnny Miller had a, a, an 11 iron in his bag. Um, so that's, I think that's probably like a gap wedge, I would think, mm. something like that. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just – so 14 was a number. Now, it's been intimated to me, and I, I can't verify it because I, I actually tried to locate people who were on the committee when they made those decisions. And the USGA came out uh, – Part of their rationale was that uh, uh, mechanics, rather than we would say technology, mechanics have overtaken the skills of the game, hmm. so they have to limit the number of clubs. Hmm. Um, and fourteen, well, you know, uh, somebody said, "Well, how many clubs did Craig Wood have?" Well, twenty-eight. Half that number works for us. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but who knows? I mean, uh, none of the guys who were on those committees are still around, and we can't ask them. Well. The USGA reduces the amount of clubs you can have in your bag to 14. That didn't affect yep. Ralph. He went out and won the U.S. Open again in 1938, this time at Cherry Hills, to become yep. just the fourth man to win the Open in consecutive years. How were the U.S. I, Open courses set up back then as compared to the famous setups of today? And what <laughs> yeah. was it about Ralph's game that helped him play so well in the U.S. Open? But you, you got to remember now, he went from 19 clubs to 14, and he wins the 1938 Open at Cherry Hills by six strokes. So, so apparently, it even close? Down on the number of clubs uh, didn't affect him too badly. Um, but no, I mean, uh, again, golf course maintenance at the time was a lot different than it is today. I mean, today, you know, the, the greens are manicured to the nth degree. Uh, we can't say that was true then. Uh, fairways are immaculate and of course you got the first cut of rough and then the second cut of rough not so much then um so to be honest with you i think the skills of the players then um uh, would, would give these players today a, a, a real run for their money um could they hit the ball like the guys do today i guess if they had well, the same what, kind of equipment well I, I tell you you know i mean sam sneed uh certainly hit drives over 300 yards and then we're talking in the 1940s here wow um yeah uh and it was well known and gotta remember they're playing balada golf balls uh, which i don't know don't know if, if you're old enough to remember the balladas that wound ball with a uh, very soft cover yeah i made a couple of them smile yeah <laughs> smile that's right the, the balada smile um so and and two not all of them held their shape uh, so you know, you know, if you're talking about guys who can who can roll as, as Goodall did a 60 foot putt uh, in the 1937 Open, um, that's saying something. You know, I mean, you can say, "Well, that's a lucky, lucky putt." Yeah, could very well be. Bobby Jones had done it for a number of times, um, but these guys, I think, and I don't want to disparage today's game in any shape, form, or fashion. But these guys had to knew, know their own distances, had to read their own greens in the sense of which way it's going to break, which way it's going to roll. Um, you know, it wasn't until Dean Beeman really came along and started doing out the yard where he'd walk off the yardage 
and, and make notes of that and very statistical. Um, and then, of course, you got the yardage for every every tournament. Uh, then you didn't. You know, you had to know your own yardage. You had to mm-hmm. know how far you were going to hit it. You had to know. Now, you would walk off the course, yeah, sure. But, uh, but you had to, I think, to be honest with you, it was more of a thinking man's game then than it is today. Hmm. Hmm. Hey, when we think of guys who have won multiple U.S. Open championships, the names that come to mind are, of course, Hogan and Nicholas Woods, maybe Lee Trevino, Bobby Jones, the guy we talked about last time you were here, Willie Anderson, Billy Casper. There are a few, but few would be hard-pressed to say Ralph Goodall, and he won two in a row. 37 and 38. Why do you think he is so lightly regarded by so many in the annals of golf history? Because his his star shone very brightly for a very brief time. So he really wasn't around long enough. I mean, you know, um, again, second at the Open, 35, 36, wins at 37, 38. Second at the Masters, 37, 38, wins it in 39. So there's that really three-year, I mean, we can push it to four-year, four-year window to where he was the man. But then World War II intervenes. Mm-hmm. And, and and golf is not played for four, four years. Uh, and then coming back, that's when you really see the rise of Hogan and Nelson. Of course, Nelson quits in, you know, in uh, 49, right. uh, 47. Um, but, but then you see these guys coming in and then by the 1950s, you had the advent of television, 1958, 59, uh, and that kind of supersedes. So now, I mean, there was, uh, something I saw on Twitter just today. Um, you know, oh, you know, if Tiger wins another major, would you consider that the greatest comeback? No, look at Hogan, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, in a near fatal crash and he comes back and he wins five majors after almost dying in a car wreck. Three in uh, one year. That's right. Exactly right. 1953. Uh, so, you know, people say Hogan who? Well, <laughs> not me. <laughs> I know exactly who Hogan is, you know, <laughs> um, but, but that's it. You know, we're, we're, we're fleeting. We, we know the stars are our age. But if we look at baseball, for me, you know, it's Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, right. these guys, right? Um, uh, and, and and of course, there's the greatest stars beyond. But for me, I know these guys. You know, um, well, so, how amazing! How amazing was it that Ralph could walk away from the game for the period of time that he did, and then come back, even though he was still young, but come back after having put the clubs down for that period of time, come back. And not only win, but win at the rate that he won and the tournaments that he won. I mean, again, 37 and 38, he wins the U.S. Open. 36, 37, and 38, the Western. And 1939, and we really haven't even discussed that, the Masters. I mean, that's really saying something. Well, it is. It is. And the thing is, you know, there's... All I can say is it was his time. Uh, you know, he, he he got in his zone and he he played lights out from start to finish. And uh, and again, and, and <laughs> Paul Sneed, who never won the U.S. Open, yeah. partly because of Goodall, um, uh, and, and then the Masters in 1939. 
Sneed is, is is in there and really pleased, and all of a sudden, here's good dolly holes out from the bunker on 18. <laughs> but to beat him by one stroke. I mean, you know, he probably felt like Greg Norman did. I was just thinking of I was just thinking of Norman <laughs> at the PGA and the Masters. That's right. Um, so you know, I mean, there is you, you got to just take him with a grain of salt, and that's that's what they always liked about like Walter Hagen. He said, "Look, I expect to make seven mistakes in a round of golf." So whenever I make a mistake, I figured that's just one of them. I've got six more to go. Uh, and, and that kind of attitude, you know, breeds winning. For Goodall, I don't know what the, the catalyst was uh, in 1935, 36, uh, but whatever it was, it certainly worked for him. It sure did. And and he had a pretty cool demeanor on the golf course. I read where Sam Sneed said, if Ralph gave someone a blood transfusion, the patient would freeze to death. What was the meaning behind that? Yeah, well, uh, a couple of things about that. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's kind of like Nicholas when he's playing – He's got blinders on. He pays attention to nothing else except his game, and apparently Goodall was the same way. But on the flip side of that, Goodall was very aware of the media and the press because, I mean, one fellow said, you know, he'd stop between every shot and comb his hair. And Goodall was really proud of his hair. Uh, and when he knew he was going to win before he walked up the 18th fairway, he'd stop, comb that, the, the hair on, on his head, to, I want to look good for the media. Yeah, in 37, uh, you know. I read where he, where he did that. As he approached the 18th hole on the final day, he takes right. the comb out of his pocket, combs his hair, and then says, I was always proud of my head of hair. Exactly right. So, you know, so he was uh, very self-aware. Let's put it that way. He was very self-aware, whether it be his game or whether it be his uh, uh, presence, or his, his perception. Um, but yeah, he, yeah, he was very proud of his head of hair, that's for sure. <laughs> so in 10 years and with some time off, he wins 16 tournaments and then he walks away. I just can't wrap my head around that. How do you do that and why did he do that? Well, I think I think the way he could do that at that particular time was the advent of World War II, uh, because you know in 1940 uh, the the amount of tournaments that one could play were hugely diminished because of wartime. Um, I mean, he made the Ryder Cup what 37, 39, 41, mm -hmm. but he only played in one 1937, and he won both of his matches by the way. But there was no Ryder Cup in 39, and there was no Ryder Cup in 41. So the opportunities to play high-level competition just didn't exist, and they didn't exist again until 1945, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and so during that time, he stopped playing, uh, and he just felt rushing when you're away from the game for that long. Uh, I don't think he was motivated to come back. Hmm. What did he do after he played? He became a club pro. Do you think he ever yeah, he, regretted uh, giving it up? I, you know, I, I haven't read that he did. Uh, I think I think he was pretty, pretty content with his life. Uh, you know, after World War II, and, and I know in 1961 he became the uh, club pro at uh, Braemar Country mm -hmm. Club out in California, uh, and he stayed there until he died. Um, so 
did he did, was, did he ever make appearances back out on tour after after he he finished uh playing it regularly very briefly in 1949, and I think at that time he just felt like he, he couldn't compete with these guys. Because you got to remember, by 1949, we're talking Hogan, Sneed, and, and uh, uh, Nelson are definitely the household names. And since he had laid off for so long, I think he just felt he, he couldn't play to that level again. Mm-hmm. So he gave it up completely in 1949. But you might as well say that really 1940 was his last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To you, what's the most fascinating thing about Ralph Goodall, and what makes him a Hall of Fame golfer? Well, beside his outstanding career, <laughs> uh, albeit brief career, the fact that he could come back—you know—he starts out as a nineteen-year-old, he wins, uh, he wins for you know a couple of years in a row, uh, and then he just the ability to walk away from—I mean, to walk away whether it's frustration or his son or the combination of all these things—I don't know. Maybe he wasn't making the money out on the tour, which uh, at that time they didn't make any money. It was a hard life. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but the ability to, to walk away and then turn right around and come back in the fashion that he did, and then at the top of his game, well, you, you know, everybody talks about well, how he lost his game, which which he did. Again, I think it was paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think he tried to correct his natural swing, and that just didn't work for him. Um but to make the decision to walk away when you've won and you've been on a winning streak for, so, for you know these four years in a row, um, just to say that's it, I'm done. Is it that I think is uh, amazing? Is there a golfer today that fans can watch who you who you could say if you watch this guy play, that's who Ralph Goodall or that person emulates Ralph Goodall the best? Hmm. Well, I'd have to think about that for a while uh, because you've got some guys. I mean, some of my guys today are people like John Rahm. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, well, uh, I think there's a comparison right there. John right. Rahm, again, 19, 20 years old, uh, comes out and, and makes an impression immediately. And maybe, again, like Ralph Nadal, uh, Rahm uh, expresses his emotions when he's really frustrated or mad. Mm-hmm. If he can get that under control, I think we'll see a lot of major championships out of this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far as swing goes, I don't know. So far as as the game goes, uh, when yeah, you've got you've got. Uh, I mean, the names that everybody bends about you know, Jordan Spieth, Jason Day, mm-hmm. Ricky Fowler. Um, but again, I throw I keep Rory McIlroy in there. I keep John Rahm in there. Uh, I think. Oh no, I'll tell you who who I think can kind of into that mode a bit is Sergio Garcia. Mm. Yeah. And there's a little bit of flamboyance there too. There is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is that. Uh, but, but Sergio, I think Sergio, uh, to me, and when he was younger in his early days, when people had the high expectations for him on everything, mm-hmm. I think he had one of the best games in golf mm-hmm. and he just didn't reach his potential. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then you don't hear from him for a little while, and now he's back. Right. Um, uh, and, of course, I think the, the wife and the family now have something to do with that as well. Sure. Uh, calmed him down a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think I could almost put Sergio in, into, that, into that mix. What about the other golfers on tour during Ralph's time? What did they say about him? What did they think about him? 
well, you know, Sneed was a fan, <laughs> mainly because Goodall beat him in the majors, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, but no, I think Sam Sneed was a big fan of Goodall. Uh, the others, you don't hear a whole lot of comments from them because, you know, a lot of them don't talk about fellow players, uh, either positive or negative, unless they just beat them in a tournament, which Sam mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think all in all, uh, again, such a, a brief period of time. I mean, I, I can think back of when I was living in Scotland, there's a couple of guys that were great amateurs that had extremely high expectations on when they turned pro, and they just faded away. Hmm. And nobody even knows their name anymore. Right. Um, uh, and, and so Ralph is, when he made his presence known from 36 to 40, everybody knew him. But then he's gone. And and the, and that and that and that period of time, he was about as good as there was. I mean, it's really hard, you know. Yeah, sure. Take away Tiger, Nicholas, and especially Nelson, who won eleven and you know in a row, eighteen in one year. That four year period is a pretty tough period to repeat as far as wins are concerned. Very few golfers have played at that kind of level like Ralph did. That's right. I mean, the only one I can think of right off the top of my head, believe it or not, is uh, a female, Nancy Lopez. Wow. I mean, Nancy, when she, her rookie year, she won nine, five in a row. And then in her second year, she won eight. Uh, so there, there's 17 wins in two years for her. And that's that's pretty similar to Ralph Goodall. Um, although Nancy did stay around for for a while and ended up with forty eight wins, right? But um, but yeah, her first appearance when she was on, she was on nine wins and followed by eight wins. Well, for Ralph, that's pretty much the same thing. When he when he was on his game, you know, for two three years, uh, you know, I would imagine that some of the pros were coming in saying, "Oh, Ralph playing here." I don't know what our chances are, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of Hagen, you know, when he says, uh, when he showed up and he would say, all right, who's coming in second today? Um, <laughs> you know, maybe that attitude was among some of the players saying, oh, Ralph's here and he's, he's on his game. Who's uh, coming in second today? Wow. Well, he's certainly a great golfer, obviously a Hall of Fame golfer. Tony, I want to thank you again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I wish more fans of golf would make the trip to St. Augustine and the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum. Tony, thank you so much. Always glad to help, man. Take care. Awesome. Thank you. Golf is littered with greats we rarely speak of. Olin Dutra, whom we briefly talked about, won a U.S. Open and a PGA, yet so few remember him. Another great we mentioned was Lawson Little, who won two PGA championships. These guys were not one-hit wonders, and neither was Ralph. The guy could flat-out play. How he could walk away from the game and he was still winning like he was, well, It's just amazing to me. But throughout history, guys at the top of their game have done it before. One of the more famous, of course, was Barry Sanders from the Detroit Lions. We can only wonder what might have been. How many more wins could Ralph have had? Well, with Snead in his prime and Nelson and Hogan taking center stage, it's hard to tell. But one thing is for sure. During the stretch of 1936 through 1940, when Ralph won 13 tournaments, including three majors and three Western Opens, you'd be hard-pressed to find many others who dominated the game in such a short period of time like Ralph Goodall.
Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about a career of a baseball player that had just begun. A career that was heading for superstardom when tragedy struck and cut short a life way too soon. The story of Lyman Bostic. That's next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you again to today's guest, Tony Parker, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Ralph Goodall's story is a fascinating one to me. One could argue that in 1937 and 1938, Ralph Goodall won the American Slam when he won the 1937 Western Open and U.S. Open, and then in 1938 repeated the feat. As Rogan and Parker mentioned on the show, he won the U.S. Open with 19 clubs, and then he repeated the feat the next year with only 14. But to me, the most fascinating part of Goodall's story was how he went from the greatest golfer in the world to one who forgot how to play the game. We all search for that elusive path to perfection, but we must remember that path is paved with the lost hopes and dreams of those who came before us. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.